The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We know that dirty money has a corrosive effect on the U.S. economy, and corporate anonymity facilitates crime and disadvantages small businesses across America. So what we want through this change, through, you know, what the, the aim of this change is to make the United States less hospitable to dirty money and support law enforcement, intelligence, and national security professionals as they work to safeguard our nation. The framework that we've instituted, as you you know, Brandon, enrolled, we opened up the database for filings on January 1st of this year. You know, filing is simple, it's secure, it's free of charge, and the information is not an annual requirement. Unless a company needs to update or correct its information, it reports once and does not need to report again. So we're trying to navigate the critical need for this information and balance it with the impact on small business. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for January 29th, 2024. Everyone recognizes sanctions as one of the United States' most powerful tools of economic statecraft, but few realize that much of the information behind sanctions designations comes from another office within the Treasury Department, specifically the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. And over the past few years, as sanctions and other economic tools have become more and more important, FinCEN has been evolving its operations and activities to keep pace. To discuss the current state of FinCEN and what its future holds, Lawfare contributing editor Brandon Van Grack and I had a conversation with its current director, Andrea Gacki, for the latest installment of our The Regulators series, focusing on the policymakers at the front lines of national security and economic statecraft. We discussed FinCEN's involvement in the historic Binance settlement, what new policies FinCEN is rolling out to tackle on everything from beneficial ownership to residential real estate, and how it is working with similar organizations around the globe. It's the Lawfare Podcast for January 29th, discussing FinCEN with director Andrea Gacki. To begin, actually, before we even get to all things FinCEN, I'm wondering if you can just walk us through your background. This isn't the first time you've been a director. And and I think not just to, to, to you know, give the audience an understanding of, of your experiences, but in part because it probably helps inform some of how you view FinCEN and even using some of those tools that are available to FinCEN. So, yeah, I you know, prior to becoming the FinCEN director, which is a position I formally entered into duty on in early September, for the last five years, I was the director of the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Controller, OFAC. And my job there was to lead an organization comparably sized to FinCEN, implementing and enforcing economic sanctions on behalf of the U.S. government. 
for the 10 previous years to that, I was also at OFAC, you know, in various management roles, um, overseeing key aspects of it. Prior to that, I got into sanctions by being at the Justice Department. Brandon's background as well, um, kind of where I first defended OFAC in um, some cases post uh, 9-11. So from the OFAC perspective, looking at FinCEN, I got to say, you know, we're, we're in the same family, the same kind of group in the Treasury Department. And they've been my colleagues for a long time. And um, I came to appreciate how much our missions were intertwined. A lot of OFAC designations depend on information that comes into FinCEN. And FinCEN sets the rules, gets the information, and ensures it's disseminated out. A proper functioning FinCEN is critical to the sanctions mission. And that's not just OFAC, but that's law enforcement, that's national security more broadly. So I had a, a sense. I had some opinions about FinCEN. And um, I was, I've always been for a long time, I've been sanctions motivated and wanting to make sure sanctions were were a tool used appropriately and wisely, and that depends on the information coming in. And then, you know, as I was moving from OFAC to FinCEN, one of the great things that my team did at OFAC was they gave me a series of briefings so I really understood how much FinCEN contributed to OFAC's mission. And um, to really, to enforcement cases, to sanctions designation cases, and to the, you know, just to how quickly we move on. And when it comes to sanctions evasion, they made very clear that's FinCEN's job. They're the ones like getting the reporting. They're on the front lines of learning where are the next front of moving beyond what OFAC is designated. So that was a pretty thrilling uh, thing for me to finally appreciate and really good, a good bridge for me to come to FinCEN. I, I like the term sanctions motivated. Uh, that's good. <laughs> I, I, um, so, uh, you know, there there are probably some folks here that are trying to figure out like what the, the acronym FinCEN stands for. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about FinCEN, what it does and, and what its relationship is with, you know, national security and foreign policy too. Yeah. So FinCEN stands for the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And it is a bureau within the Treasury Department situated under the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. So Under Secretary Brian Nelson is my boss, as he was my boss when I was director of OFAC. Ultimately, of course, we report to Secretary Yellen. Um, the mission of FinCEN is to safeguard the financial system from illicit use, combat money laundering and related crimes, and promote national security through the strategic use of financial information and collection, analysis, and dissemination of financial intelligence. And FinCEN does this by serving two primary roles, first as a regulator and next as, as the United States Financial Intelligence Unit. As a regulator, we are in charge of implementing and enforcing and um, administering the Bank Secrecy Act, setting the rules by which you know, by which financial institutions and other entities set up structures to analyze, to set up anti-money laundering programs, but also to, to develop reporting, suspicious activity reporting, which comes to FinCEN. The financial intelligence unit part is how we take in, collect, analyze, disseminate. We sit on a lot of data that we um, have a great responsibility to protect and to share. There are international standards for um, anti-money laundering, and a financial intelligence unit like FinCEN is a central national agency that's responsible for receiving, analyzing, and disseminating the financial intelligence to competent authorities. 
So, you know, serving as both a regulator and an FIU means that FinCEN is actually unique among other FIUs. We belong to a collection of 170 FIU collection, you know, like a group, the Egmont group of financial intelligence units. But uh, we are unique in that we have a regulatory role as well. Could you also just talk a little bit about those those tools you have as a regulator? You know, what what makes FinCEN, not just in terms of the dual roles that you just said, but in terms of some of those tools as well? Yeah, and I I might do this by try to quickly sketch out a little bit of the functions that FinCEN has in it. Um, you know, we've got a regulatory team. Their work is to issue, interpret, and clarify regulations to combat money laundering and other forms of illicit finance. These require, I alluded to, um, approximately 300,000 financial institutions to report timely and accurate information regarding suspicious activities and other transactional information which we often call BSA data, to FinCEN. Then we maintain this information in a secure database. And in addition to providing direct access to agencies with the need to know, like FBI, law enforcement, other entities, we also have teams of analysts who pour over this data. And they use advanced analytic tools and techniques to map out illicit networks and identify targets. And this is for further action law enforcement, sanctions, a lot of uh, roads that could take. We're also, you know, we're also have a great deal of partnership both domestically and internationally. Domestically, we work very closely with U.S. banks and other private sector entities, and we issue advisories to direct and further drive reporting on priority risks and um, host events to exchange information with them. Um, it's truly a partnership, and we want to improve our over- overall regulatory regime. And then on the international front, as I mentioned, you know, we can lean on a global network of FIUs with us through the Egmont group of FIUs. And then finally, I'll just uh, conclude, but we do have authorities to bring some bad actors to account. We've had a number of important um, uh, enforcement actions we've brought to resolution recently. Those can be civil enforcement investigations, but we also have, you know, a tool related to designating certain foreign institutions, jurisdictions, or other activities outside the United States as a primary money laundering concern. And I'll just conclude saying, you know, one of the key things on our plate right now is implementing all the provisions of the Corporate Transparency Act to include beneficial ownership. So that's a great transition to my next question. So I want to give people a case study about what FinCEN does, is doing, and how it fits into the broader enforcement and regulatory structure. So let's talk about one of the biggest enforcement actions we've seen really, well, ever, uh, honestly, but particularly recently that's been in the news that listeners may have heard of. That's the Binance Settlement Action, the biggest settlement in terms of dollar amount that we've ever seen in this space. Um, and on top of that, a novel enforcement measures involved, a monitorship for the first time, I believe. Tell us a little bit about this case, you know, how it came about, and then FinCEN's role in it. Um, how did FinCEN's work contribute to it, and how will it continue to contribute to it now that it's going to be operating under this monitorship arrangement? You know, I think you're, you know, you know well, this is the biggest case in the Treasury Department's history. And Binance itself is the world's largest virtual asset service provider. It's responsible for around 60% of centralized virtual currency spot trading. So I was at OFAC when this case was really um, coming into being. Um, So I can tell you, with all credit to my FinCEN colleagues at the time, that the case started at FinCEN. 
The case started and you know to um to really longtime like dedicated FinCEN employees who um who you know saw uh, Binance's ads noting that it would set up structures to evade, you know, AML laws in the United States. And um, I want to, you know, just give all credit to FinCEN for being a driving force here. But obviously, FinCEN wasn't the only player here at the end of the day. And that's important for the for the global resolution of the case. But when it comes down to what Binance did is as a money service business, it was required to register with FinCEN to establish, implement, and maintain an effective AML program and, as appropriate, to file suspicious activity reports with FinCEN. Binance willfully violated these requirements, and it allowed a range of illicit actors to transact freely on the platform and damages the integrity of, you know, from our perspective, the financial institution. And we saw, at the end of the day, you know, uh, willfully fail to report over 100,000 suspicious activity uh, transactions to FinCEN and some of the counterparties ranged from terrorist organizations, ransomware attackers, child sexual exploitation sites, frauds, and scams. The scale, the scope, and the nature of the illicit activity um, occurring on the platform um, and the size of the scope and scope of the of finances and operation necessitated FinCEN and government partners taking action. The civil monetary penalty that we uh, entered into um, by consent order with Binance, which was $3.4 billion for FinCEN alone, is the largest itself in Treasury history. Um, as you noted, it imposes a five-year monitorship, which is unique um, in FinCEN cases, and also requires significant compliance undertakings, including Binance's complete exit from the United States. So tell us a little bit about how this monitorship we think is going to work. And is, is this – you mentioned this is kind of the first time we've seen this as a novel measure. Is this a new tool in the toolbox that we're going to see in other cases moving forward? So yes, Scott. You know, the, the monitor is is unique to FinCEN, new, a, new, a new concept for FinCEN, not new for, you know, Justice Department-led um, investigations of which Treasury has played a role. But we think it's a critical – aspect of the resolution with Binance. And that is really key because of the details of the Binance case. You know, Binance turned a blind eye to its legal obligations. Um, It processed and failed to report to FinCEN, you know, suspicious activity involving a broad range of illicit actors. We think in this case, the monitor is going to play an important role in light of the significant remediation required and because of the opacity of Binance's operations. But I would hesitate to call this a new model for us. But compliance undertakings are part of um, many um, FinCEN um, enforcement, to, you know, enforcement um, cases before this, part of the enforcement toolkit. And we will, of course, consider it when appropriate in upcoming cases. Um, I don't want to prejudge whether a similar approach is going to work for other enforcement at cases that might come down the line. One of the other sort of big uh, undertakings that that FinCEN is involved in is concerning beneficial ownership information uh, in terms of setting up a database, reporting. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe just as a starting point, talking a little bit about what, in fact, is beneficial ownership information. Like how does that you know relate to what you just talked about in terms of FinCEN's mission? And then talking, we can talk a little bit about the database and some of the, the changes that that were, you know, what just went into effect this month. So just to step back at the broadest level, 
Beneficial ownership is meant to peel back layers of corporate anonymity to to ensure that the opacity of corporate structures aren't used to funnel a whole range of illicit activity. It's a, it's a key plank in the administration's anti-corruption agenda, but it has its basis in a law that passed with overwhelming bipartisan approval, um, the Corporate Transparency Act, which was part of the broader Anti-Money Laundering Act enacted in 2021 that had a lot of measures to improve U.S. AML CFT effectiveness. What the Corporate Transparency Act does in terms of beneficial ownership is it requires many companies doing business in the United States to report information about their beneficial owners. So these are the actual human beings, the individuals who ultimately own or control them. And sometimes they have to report the people who actually form the company. Collectively, this information is going to be called is called beneficial ownership information. Um, we sometimes call it BOI. You know, just to come back to my starting point, this is all to address what we've long seen is that criminals use anonymous companies to hide or launder the proceeds of their crimes. We know that dirty money has a corrosive effect on the U.S. economy. And corporate anonymity facilitates crime and disadvantages small businesses across America. So what we want through this change, through what the the aim of this change is to make the United States less hospitable to dirty money and support law enforcement, intelligence, and national security professionals as they work to safeguard our nation. The framework that we've instituted, as you, as you know, Brandon, it rolled, we opened up the database for filings on January 1st of this year. You know, filing is simple, it's secure, it's free of charge, and the information is not an annual requirement. Unless a company needs to update or correct its information, it reports once and does not need to report again. So we're trying to navigate the critical need for this information and balance it with the impact on small business. And so, you know, previously the point is this information um, and I should maybe do a public service announcement for some of our acronyms. So you already described BOI. BSA is Bank Secrecy Act and uh, AML is Anti-Money Laundering. We will try to throughout this um, uh, provide those announcements. Um, so so the point is this information was not previously collected. Can you talk a little bit? The, the database went live. Are you able to sort of provide some numbers in terms of like what volume? It's only been – it's been less than a month now or about a month. And so you know, can you give us a sense of like how the database is working? Sure. In the first week that it was stood up, we collected 100,000 reports, 100,000 companies reported successfully. Um, as of yesterday, we were up to 300,000 reports. We also have a contact center that's set up specifically for beneficial ownership. So far, we've received 18,000 tickets for assistance. We've closed, we've resolved 16,000 of those. So things are going strong, but it's a we, we, we have a long road to completion too. I'm totally intimidated by anything technology related in database. So, you know, God bless you, uh, best of luck. Um, so maybe just one other piece on that, which is, First is the collection, then is the use. And so can you talk a little bit about what access, you know, what does access look like and, and whether in fact it, you know, uh, government agencies and law enforcement is in fact getting access to the database? Yeah, right now. So so we finalized a rule at the end of um, 2023. We finalized a rule that, that, uh, that establishes the rules for access and the parameters by which access uh, will uh, be obtained. Let me tick through who will get access. Um, who will get access are federal agencies involved in national security, intelligence, and law enforcement, 
state, local, and tribal enforcement agencies if they have court authorization, foreign law enforcement agencies, judges, prosecutors, and other authorities, but they have to meet specific criteria, and treasury officers and employees. That was set by statute. We are we set up rules around that. Importantly, financial institutions also, with customer consent, can have access to beneficial ownership information. This will facilitate their compliance with customer due diligence requirements under applicable law, but that goes more broadly as they as they need to know their customer, including, for example, sanctions compliance. They'll be able to use this information. And their regulators will have access to the information for supervisory purposes. Right now, the database is being populated. So we're going to be rolling out access in stages. And our final rule establishes that only authorized recipients will have access to this information. And the authorized recipients have to protect that information and use it only for purposes under the Corporate Transparency Act. And authorized recipients can only redisclose beneficial ownership information in ways that further object further the objectives of the Corporate Transparency Act. Our database is non-public, it's secure, and it is uses information controls um, typically used in the federal government to uh, protect non-classified information systems at the highest security level. So we're going to be working out on rolling out access to beneficial ownership information, but these are some important ground rules for access. So talking about gathering information from sensitive sources, another program that you all have been standing up for for a while now, but it's still in process, is a whistleblower program, um, a system by which could be a very valuable tool for collecting information from a variety of domains um, when you're dealing with transactions that might not be fully available or visible to the public, ways you can get access to different sorts of information for enforcement purposes that obviously could be valuable. Tell us a little bit about the program, where it is right now, where it is progress-wise, what the goal is, the end state you're envisioning for it is. And I'd be curious to what you can share about what you're doing with it right now. What are we seeing in terms of how it's being used? You know, and, and this is something that I, of course, knew about when I was at OFAC because it has a sanctions dimension and um, it was it had um, captured my interest and many others' interest even before, you know, before I got to go come to FinCEN um, to have a part of it. But uh, the whistleblower program at FinCEN, which was established by statute, recently expanded by statute as well, is designed to incentivize individuals to provide information to the U.S. government about violations of the Bank Secrecy Act, but also U.S. economic and trade sanctions um, violations. So under the new program, individuals who provide FinCEN with information about the violations can be eligible for financial awards if the information they provide leads to a successful enforcement action. The program has tremendous potential to be a force multiplier, to really help direct enforcement efforts to those that are most important in the U.S. government. To date, FinCEN has received nearly 250 tips. And the program's popularity is continuing to grow each year. The tips have nearly doubled between fiscal year 2022 and 2023. And we've set up a team to manage this, manage these tips, and to distribute them to our enforcement colleagues across the U.S. government. Can you tell us a little bit about the volume? Like how much is this actually happening right now? Do we have a sense about how useful a tool it has been? Or is that still something that's in progress, figuring out the right way to calibrate and provide the right incentives to 
make it as valuable as obviously it could be? You know, I think that we we still have work to do to stand it up. You know, we're, we are um, working on regulations that will govern the process of TIP and award submissions and adjudications. Uh, that process will likely involve developing an online portal so that members of the public can safely and securely submit TIPs and award applications to FinCEN. And these rulemaking and technological efforts are underway. I also think it's too soon to say, in part because of the um, the timeline for enforcement cases is is sometimes protracted. But um, I, I and I can't share any instances of um, potential award, rewards at this time. But I can say that we're eager to operationalize this at FinCEN. When you talk about whistleblower programs, there's sort of a, a pragmatism to it, right? Which is we, what what the government is trying to do just broadly is, you know, in in a cost benefit analysis onto what to do with information, substantially increase the benefit and therefore change the behavior. You know, I'm wondering what you would, as as you just said, um, there are still aspects of the program that are under development. There haven't been any awards issued yet because of the timeline of these. So, what would you say to someone to answer two questions for this program? I want to call it a nascent program, which is one is what would you say to someone when you have this nascent program that hasn't issued awards yet in terms of concerns about security? And two, in terms of prospects of of, of benefit, prospects of award, like how, how would you sort of respond to, to concerns raised about that or, or questions? Right. This is a nascent program. And while we set up the regulations, we look to, however, the, the statutes that authorize this program, and they set up three basic protections. Those statutes are the Anti-Money Laundering Act and the Whistleblower Improvement Act. The three protections, commitments are, first, there are certain confidentiality protections for whistleblowers. Second, the statute prohibits retaliation by employers against individuals who provide information. And third, the statutes provide a robust funding mechanism to ensure that eligible whistleblowers who often provide, you know, information at great personal and professional risk receive monetary awards. So that is the those are the underpinnings. That's the statutory authorization and against those FinCEN will now develop the rules. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So talking about nascent programs, let's shift to another nascent program or anticipated program uh, that we see coming down the pike. Um, Because we're anticipating an announcement later this year about residential real estate, um, which is a topic that's kind of been an increasing focus, real estate generally, I should say. We've seen it in the sanctions context, in the CFIUS context over the last five or six years. It's a big focus, new authorities in that space. 
Tell us why FinCEN is interested in residential real estate with this new rule, and and can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek about what it might look like and what we should be expecting in terms of time frame, substance, things along those lines? The U.S. Real, residential real estate market we've long seen as vulnerable to exploitation by illicit actors. The Treasury Department's been seeing that the residential real estate market in particular um, sees people rely on opaque legal structures and all cash transfers And this has been used to anonymously launder money and evade the scrutiny of banks and other financial institutions involved in real estate purchases. So on December 15th, 2023, FinCEN submitted a proposed rule to the Office of Management and Budget. And this has been – this proposed rule is under review and the proposal is to develop regulations to combat money laundering and promote transparency in the residential real estate sector. We aim to publish this notice of proposed rulemaking in early 2024. There will be a 60-day comment period. And this rule is building on Treasury's experience with geographic targeting orders that we've issued specific to residential real estate purchases. And also takes into account uh, public comments received in response to an advance notice of proposed rulemaking we put out in 2021. Can you talk, what, what is the targeting order? Can you talk about that? Sure. A geographic targeting order is a device by which FinCEN can um, authorize or seek collection around certain geographic um, areas focusing on certain um, illicit activity to drive data collection and evaluate um, an illicit risk. Uh, staying with the topic of forthcoming rules, um, there's also anticipated rules with respect to investment advisors. And can you talk a little bit about what that expected in, in rule uh, covers and, and why? So again, another um, anticipated rule under development. I can't go into great detail, but I can offer some some my, some thoughts, which is, you know, when it comes to investment advisors, Unlike many other financial services professions, this sector has never been subject to comprehensive anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism obligations, despite the fact that the sector manages trillions of dollars in assets. Right now, there is a patchwork of anti-money laundering coverage in the sector. Certain investment advisors apply, implement some measures to to, to protect anti against anti-money laundering, including because they're duly registered as broker dealers or part of a financial holding company that is already subject to such requirements. So for decades, this sector has been vulnerable to criminals and other illicit actors that have used investments to gain access to the U.S. financial system to invest in U.S. securities and other assets, and facilitate crime like corruption, fraud, tax evasion, along with other illicit activities. And this vulnerability has increased as the industry has grown. There's also a national security dimension to this vulnerability as well. We've identified investment advisors serving as an entry point into the U.S. financial system for Russian oligarchs and for Russian government-affiliated funds, Foreign states like China and Russia have also used investment advisors to access certain technology and services with long-term national security implications through investments in early-stage companies. So by proposing AML-CFT program and suspicious activity report filing requirements for certain investment advisors, Treasury is taking action to keep the dirty money out of the United States and protect our economic and national security. 
We look forward to proceeding with a robust rulemaking uh, process, and we will be welcoming um, public comments uh, from interested parties. That's a, that's a busy 2024 for you all. Um, it is. You're going to be an expert on policymaking. All right. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Scott. So in terms of what FinCEN has been working on, of course, we've already hit on that you play a central role, interact with a lot of different federal agencies, a lot of different enforcement authorities and regulatory authorities. Something we spent a fair amount of time on, including with our last guest here uh, on the Regulator series, is export controls. And you all have done a joint announcement that came up in that conversation about export control violations in suspicious activity reports. Can you tell us a little about this collaborative effort? You know, what brought it about? Uh, what is new about it? And how effective has it been? What have we seen come out of it? So I know you had um, Assistant Secretary Axelrod on recently to discuss export control evasion. And he did a wonderful job in describing the genesis of FinCEN's partnership with BIS, or excuse me, the Department of Commerce Bureau of Industry and Security, um, in issuing to issue a series of advisory products to help financial institutions identify and report suspected export control violations. This began in uh, June of 2022, where we issued a joint alert um, to financial institutions that highlighted tactics and red flag indicators of suspicious activities that were indicative of Russian and Belarusian actors seeking to evade export controls and acquire sensitive dual-use technologies in support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, We followed it with a supplemental alert in May 2023 and a public financial trend analysis and an analytical product that outlined patterns to assist law enforcement in um, understanding the problem set and potential avenues for disruption. And then we recently um, issued, um, you know, a notice highlighting, you know, red flags for global export control evasion and new key terms for financial um, institutions. This has been incredibly important to focus on export controls because this is where Putin is, you know, building its war machine in Ukraine. And so across the Treasury Department, export controls but also sanctions evasion, we've been engaging in a concerted effort to disrupt the financing of and the export of the critical components that – Russia still needs to wage war. It has not completely indigenized its war-making apparatus. And so there are points of disruption and vulnerability, and you will see so much action coming out of both the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department at that. And we know that the procurement of technology requires money. And so we saw with Commerce an opportunity to partner on this issue and ensure that not only the U.S. financial institutions, but also the broader global financial system are not being used to facilitate payments for the procurement of technology, software, or tooling that furthers Russia's uh, war efforts. I would say that we've always had a good partnership with commerce. Certainly we did at my, um, at my time at OFAC as well. I feel like we've recently brought it to the next level as with many things with the um, the tragedy of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's also produced some synergies and partnerships that have allowed us to leverage our authorities in better ways. 
You know, just on that, when Assistant Secretary Axelrod was on here, he uh, gladly remarked that this was the first joint announcement, I think, uh, with FinCEN. And I'm just wondering, even beyond the Department of Commerce, how has engagement with other agencies and departments transformed similarly, and, and I suppose that within the context that you just described following the, the uh, Russian invasion? Immediately after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, FinCEN was at the forefront of standing up um, like-minded financial intelligence units around the world in order to share information related to um, Russia, Russia sanctions evasion, Russian you know export control evasion. I think we have not only partnered internationally, uh, but also domestically. We have put together many um, what we call FinCEN exchanges, like public-private partnerships. Commerce has been a key feature. So has the FBI. So has DOJ. So has OFAC, um, where we have brought together financial institutions with law enforcement, sanctions professionals, civil you know, enforcement, all the authorities in order to build information sharing networks and make sure that we can – are helping our financial institutions – um, do their important role of detecting this, um, detecting reporting this information, um, and then that law enforcement and other enforcement professionals could, you know, take take action. So your note about working to set up these offices, these regulatory offices in other countries, really leads into another topic I want to touch on before our time together ends, and that's this issue of multilateral engagement. Um, you noted the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as being a bit of a paradigm-shifting event, which is true in so many areas, and we are seeing so many new types of engagement as the United States is increasingly focused on economic statecraft tools as a big front in major power competition, essentially, of this era, which involves not just Russia, but also China and also, frankly, lots of other countries in a different array, a different set of challenges than we were dealing with two decades ago, three decades ago. How does FinCEN fit into that? What is the multilateral engagement strategy? What have you all, all been doing? And what do you all expect to be doing in the years to come as these issues become even more to the forefront than they have been these last few years? This is a great question. Something certainly at the forefront of our um, planning as we look to the future. And, you know, from my perspective, the increased dialogue and coordination with our foreign counterparts has played a really crucial role, um, especially, for example, in our efforts to disrupt um, Hamas and other terrorist financing and facilitators following the events um, of October 7th and um, subsequent um, events. You know, we saw immediately after the October 7th attacks that Hamas solicited donations and redoubled efforts to continue its terrorist activities. Our goal has been to cut off that financing. And one thing that FinCEN in particular has done is we have worked very closely with Israel's financial intelligence unit and other key partners, other key financial intelligence units to develop the Counterterrorist Financing Task Force, Israel. So along with the um, FIUs of Israel, Germany, and the Netherlands, we are leading a core group of FIUs with weekly meetings to um, share intelligence, to share typologies, and to establish open and regular communication among task force members. This is just one domain that we are collaborating really closely with our international colleagues 
Next week, um, I'm actually going to my first ever um, Egmont Group annual meeting. It will be in Malta. I've never been. <laughs> and um, I'm looking forward to meeting with FIUs you know, from around the world to strengthen our partnerships and to identify common areas of investigative interest. And I think you mentioned this before, but another public service announcement, the Egmont Group. Could you just uh, remind everyone what it is? Yeah. And the Egmont Group is, you know, the international body and agreement that establishes um, a membership of 170 financial um, intelligence units uh, from around the world who uh, basically um, uh, are committed to working together, establishing best practices, et cetera. I know that FinCEN uh, was a very leading member in establishing the Egmont Group. And heading into this meeting, do you all have a sense of of what the goal is, where, where you want to see international cooperation go in this space? Are there specific objectives, things you're working towards or trying to build a consensus towards that might give us a sense of where multilateral cooperation might be five years from now, given all these new fronts, all these new initiatives FinCEN is facing and no doubt hoping to get some international cooperation on in different fronts? Well, from my perspective, and this is you know this is my first time going. I'm relatively new to the role of FinCEN director. From my perspective, FinCEN has a long history of being a leader in the Egmont Group, and my goal is to continue to build those technical connections and professional relationships across all FIUs, not just the FIUs of our natural allies. But one of my key objectives going there is actually to form those connections with countries that aren't, we don't always see eye to eye with. And so that's what I'm looking forward to in the coming week. But as for particular policy outcomes at this time, I um, I apologize. I don't have much more to say at that at this point. <laughs> totally fair. You know, one thing, uh, you know, why I at the outset wanted to get into your career arc is because not just from different agencies, but over sort of different um, geopolitical events, you've sort of experienced cooperation, sort of engagement in different ways. And I'm wondering, on the multilateral piece, my experience, uh, from which is now somewhat dated, cooperation, information sharing was very difficult. And you talked a little bit about uh, some of the cooperation around Israel, but I'm wondering, just even sort of, we'll say, post-Russia invasion, has there been a demonstrable change? And that's in part compared to sort of even your experience back at OFAC director and sort of prior. Absolutely. So, you know, when I was OFAC director, one of the things that was uh, a little tough in that role is that we didn't have a we didn't have a counterpart in many countries until um, the UK developed um, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. We have a, had developed in my like final years at OFAC um, a really great partnership, including detailing uh, staff to each other and, um, and you know publicly articulating our partnership with regular meetings. Um, that was incredible. Uh, but often when I would go to foreign countries to talk about sanctions risks, I was often met with the FIUs of different countries as close, if not quite on par on the mark of like what a sanctions, who a sanctions counterpart might be. The one thing I really am fortunate to have at FinCEN is this built-in international network. I was immediately welcomed into the job by so many directors of other financial intelligence units. I think that I am committed to information sharing. I can only hope to improve on it. Brandon, you may not remember this, but many years ago when you we talked once, you you told me, you paid me what I thought was the highest compliment 
um, that OFAC, I've, I'd ever almost ever heard about OFAC, and there, I've heard a lot of criticism, true. But um, the compliment was you said that OFAC was very generous with its information and expertise. And I don't know if you remember that or I don't know if you changed uh, was, your mind I was, in the past. I was very vulnerable at the time. I do, I do, I do think it maybe involved around JCPOA. But <laughs> yes, yeah. And so I thought that that was just a wonderful thing that I want any organization that I lead to be known for. And so coming into FinCEN, I want to ensure that we are actively but appropriately sharing information and, you know, facilitating appropriate use of law law enforcement tools, um, other tools. And so that is a that's a key objective for me. Maybe sort of transitioning from objectives to priorities as well. Um, if sort of giving you the floor to talk about what and we've covered a number of anticipated changes, uh, uh, regulations and rules, it seems like it's going to be a very busy year for you. But in terms of priorities, anything else that we haven't touched on, uh, you know, there that you want to sort of identify or highlight for priorities for FinCEN for, for this coming year? For the upcoming year, we have a lot of work ahead of us. You know, we've got we're, we're no, certainly not done with beneficial ownership off to a great start. We have a big compliance and outreach job ahead of us, and we're 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 taking that on wholeheartedly. Um, we've also got more rulemakings to follow, um, including um, under the terms of the Corporate Transparency Act, revising uh, FinCEN's customer due diligence uh, rule, which was issued in 2016, and sets the rules for how financial institutions gain beneficial ownership information. We're, we've got to look at that. So we've got that and, of course, the residential real estate investment advisor rulemakings ahead of us, a lot of of big work. But I think that other than that, I think that we will just at FinCEN need to remain responsive to national security events and pivot our um, our authorities as necessary to use our tools um, in order to combat those threats. I wish I could be more... uh, more precise than that in my on my uh, outlook. Believe me, I do. It would make it my job a lot easier. <laughs> but instead, um, I think other than the um, huge work that we still have ahead of us in uh, implementing aspects of the Any Money Laundering Act, I just uh, want to make sure that FinCEN is there and ready to act when it comes to national security threats. It does feel like a, an ambitious 2024, like in terms of resources and personnel. Like where where does FinCEN stand on that? Well, when I've since I've come to FinCEN, I have been really gripped by the breadth of the mandates. It is huge and it's diverse, and we are doing our best, but we're pretty leanly staffed. Now we've had fortune, you know, we've 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 gotten a lot of support from the Treasury Department from the budget. You know, we've we uh, we've been fortunate in many respects, but. I'd be lying if I if I didn't say um, I, I'd love a little more to get a little bit more done. Well, that is a good point to wind up our conversation on. But Andrea Gacky, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Brandon. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. 
For more information, visit lawfarmedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Hall and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.